This is Eve Lazarus, and you're listening to Cold Case Canada, The Disappearance of Lindsay Nichols. Cold Case Canada is an independently produced true crime podcast hosted by Eve Lazarus, a reporter and author based in Vancouver, British Columbia. This episode is brought to you by our sponsor, Forbidden Vancouver Walking Tours. On the day that Lindsay Nichols disappeared, she was last seen walking down Royston Road, heading towards the Old Island Highway in the Comox Valley. It was August 2nd, 1993 the holiday Monday of the BC Day long weekend, and Lindsay was meeting friends at the annual Comox Nautical Days Festival, a 15-minute drive away. No one remembers seeing Lindsay get in a car that day, but the 14-year-old was known to hitchhike. Lindsay was a slim 5'3 with green eyes and long blonde hair that she coloured with henna. The family had relocated to Vancouver Island from Delta a suburb outside Vancouver, in the summer of 1992, and Lindsay was having trouble adapting to small-town life. It wasn't that Lindsay hadn't tried to fit in. She'd made friends at Highland Secondary, and she went to local dances on Friday nights and skied most weekends. Still, Lindsay missed her friends back in Delta. This is Lindsay's mother, Judy Peterson. Can you tell me a bit about her? What was she like? She was just a delightful child. Like, she was... So cute and so easy and happy. You know, she liked, we, we went to horseback, kids horseback riding on a vacation. I have memories of that. And going out on a boat and fishing. And she was in the swim club. Both the kids were. And they seemed to really enjoy that. Spent Christmas up in the mountain one year. Kelowna, big white. And then Lindsay started to change. She struggled academically, and Judy transferred her to a small private school in Delta. That seemed to work until the school moved and Lindsay had to go back to the high school. Then things started to go very wrong. Well, she was definitely an acting out teenager, right? Mm -hmm. So she was 13, 14. We had moved from Delta to Comox, and she was really struggling. When did you move from Delta? Oh, we were there for a full year. We moved in 92, the summer of 92. And ironically, I thought, oh, thank God, you know, this is going to be so much safer here. And when I think about it, I just cringe. She joined Air Cadets, and we had a skiing pass, and we went skiing a lot all that winter. We went to Disneyland that April, and she was still ornery and being a teenager. Yeah, she really struggled at school. She had a fight with her dad, and the next morning she pretended she was going to school and left. Lindsay's father, Martin Nichols, was an RCMP officer in commercial crime, complex work that involved money laundering, financial crime and fraud. When Lindsay started getting into trouble when they lived in Delta, Martin called the local RCMP. He asked them what legal means were available to him to keep his daughter safe. The officer told him that there was nothing that he could do 
the criminal code didn't allow them to do a thing. Tell me about Lindsay. When did things start going off the rails? Oh, man. I don't know. But when she was just turned 13, I think she started having trouble at school, and, and then she started running away. And then she started hanging out with, uh, with various rat bags. And one thing led to another, and it got to the point where I was getting pretty pissed off. And uh, one time she came home with cigarette burns all over her back. And she was hanging out with a little uh, guy is in uh, Delta. And he was a, just a regular little rat bag. Was he older? Oh, a bunch older. He was like okay. 18 or 19. Oh, that must have been terrifying. Yeah. I remember phoning the Surrey RCMP complaining. I said, listen, my 13-year-old daughter is basically running away and going to this crack house in Surrey. She's dating, in quotation marks, uh, who's uh, five years older than her, or six years older, and he's an adult, and she isn't. And anyway, a uh, nice guy came from Surrey Detachment, and I sat and talked to him, and I said, what can I do? What, or what can you do? And he said, nothing. He said, criminal code doesn't allow us to do anything. Then Lindsay told a social worker that Martin was physically abusing her. It resulted in an investigation, but he was cleared after Lindsay confessed that she'd made it up so she could move out of the family home and into government care and get the benefits that she perceived came with that. Around that time, Martin received an offer to move to Comox and head up a two-man commercial crime unit. He jumped at the opportunity for a fresh start for his family and they moved into a beautiful home on the waterfront. So I'm working, living in a total washing machine. Everything's upside down all the time. I got this opportunity to go to Comox and to get promoted and be in charge of a little commercial crime unit. I would have been the unit commander for a two-man commercial crime unit. That was like a bright ray of sunshine in a very dark time in my life. I thought, oh, this couldn't be any better. We can take Lindsay away. I'm going to have a job that's going to take the stress needle from 12 down to 2 and get out of this stupid, crazy, expensive city we were living in. And it all looked pretty good. So we moved there, got a beautiful house on the waterfront, move in, and Lindsay runs away. If you're like me and enjoy tales from the darker side of history, then get yourself on a forbidden Vancouver walking tour. Your guide will share tales of mobsters, riots, corruption, bootlegging, hidden treasure and unsolved murder as you explore Vancouver's most interesting nooks. From the back streets and alleyways of Victorian Gastown to the forested trails of Stanley Park. Forbidden Vancouver's had over 1,500 five-star reviews on TripAdvisor and are winners of the prestigious City of Vancouver Heritage Medal of Honour. Book tickets at ForbiddenVancouver.com and save 15% on your booking using the code COLDCASE. Carmen became friends with Lindsay not long after she moved to Comox and started at the local high school. Thanks for talking to me. I was just really trying to get a sense of Lindsay. How did you know her? I met her when 
she moved to Comox. So her and I were in the same PE class. What grade was that? Nine. Had to have been grade nine. Yeah, because it was at Highland. Did you hang around with her? Yeah, we hung around quite a bit, actually. She was in Air Cadet, and I joined Air Cadet. I did not like it. I did not last. We used to sneak away and go smoke cigarettes. We were friends for most of that year, I, as far as I remember. What was she like to yeah. hang around with? She was fun, and she was really good-natured. I remember, like, the first week of school in gym, and she got hit in the face with a soccer ball. We were playing soccer. And you know how you get hit in the face, yep. and, like, your eyes start watering, and she's laughing, and she's like, I'm okay, I'm okay. I'm like, are you sure you're okay like that? Like, it hit hard. But she was really, yeah, she was good-natured. Even then, though, there was a dark side to Lindsay. Carmen says that she would ask people to play a game with her in which they pushed on a chest until she passed out. Oh, God. Thinking about it now gives me a heart attack. But have one person push against your chest and you hold your breath until you passed out mm. against a tree. <laughs> I don't know why, because teenagers do reckless things, I guess. But she would ask people to do that, right? I remember her asking me to do that, and it was terrifying. She fell one time and hit her head, and it was scary. I thought she was dead. She wasn't afraid to do things that were dangerous. She was kind of reckless that way. And then things got worse. Lindsay was viciously attacked by two older girls from her school. They jumped Lindsay, beat her badly, and ripped out large chunks of her hair. For no reason. No reason. I'm pretty sure it would have been me if I'd been outside. I'm actually sure those girls chased me down the road. They just wanted to beat people up. Yeah, it was really awful. I took her to my house. She made me promise not to tell anybody because she didn't want it. Make it worse, I guess. I don't know. But Lindsay couldn't hide the bruises from her parents. And the next day, they took her to the RCMP detachment to report the assault. Judy told Lindsay that they needed to make sure that this didn't happen again. But as in Delta, Lindsay was always pushing back against the rules and was constantly at odds with her parents. Earlier that year, Lindsay and her dad got into a fight after he caught her sneaking out one night. The next morning, Lindsay pretended to go to school, but instead she packed her clothes, snowflake her teddy bear and some other treasures in her backpack wrote a note for her mother and ran away, back to the mainland and to Delta. She called me when she was gone and I phoned her mum and left a message on her mum's answer machine, her mum and dad, because they were still together then. I didn't say it was me. I just said, I talked to Lindsay and she's okay. And I hung up. Teenagers yeah. don't rat each other out, right? But I knew that if it was my mum, she'd be really worried. Judy quickly discovered that when a teen runs away and refuses to come home, there is little that a parent can do. So in the end, she struck a bargain with Lindsay. If Lindsay agreed to come back to Comox, she could live in temporary foster care and the family would all attend counselling. So she said, well, I want to live in a foster home here. I said, well, I'll sign something that you can live in a foster home, but I want it to be here so that you're closer to us. She agreed. And so she came back, I signed all the papers, and they put her in a group home right up the street from us, and she visited, and I'd go out and she'd be jumping on the trampoline. 
Judy says she's not sure if wanting to move out of the family home was Lindsay's way of saving face, or if her daughter thought that there would be no rules in foster care and she could do what she liked. But Judy was desperate to keep Lindsay safe and close to home, so she made the arrangements through a social worker in Comox. I was surprised to learn that there was so little a parent could legally do to keep their kids off the streets and away from dangerous situations. I contacted the Ministry of Children and Family Development to ask them what would happen today. As it turns out, nothing has changed. There are no legal means to detain a child or youth who decides to run away unless they are committed under the Mental Health Act, wrote James Whale, Deputy Director of Child Welfare. The ministry can provide social supports for children and their families, such as parent-teen conflict counsellors and outreach workers, or help them find relatives willing to look after them, but only if the child agrees. Parents must depend on non-legislative support options and their relationships to encourage their children to remain at home. Lindsay landed in a group home that was right up the street from her family. Judy could visit and Lindsay could come home. It was a temporary situation though, and after a couple of weeks, Lindsay was placed with a foster family in Royston, a seaside village located across the bay from Comox, 100 kilometres northwest of Nanaimo. Lindsay's sister Kim is four years younger than Lindsay and is now married with a child of her own. What she can't wrap her head around is why her sister wanted to live in government care and why she went so badly off the rails. Most of her memories of Lindsay, though, are happy ones. There's so many special moments. I remember her letting me come in and have sleepovers, and we would call them like owl nights, and we'd stay up mm. at night and have little flashlights. So mm. there were cute little moments. So she was really happy at times. For the most part, I feel like we were like a pretty typical family. When I look at the whole scheme of things, like I feel like just not that out of the ordinary. Like the rules that we had would have been normal rules. We had a lot of opportunities. But you must have been traumatized too, Kim. I mean, what was it well, like for you growing up? Did you think oh, she was going to come home? Oh, it's the worst. It's the absolute yeah. worst. And even never goes away. It's the worst. Like, it's just a never-ending nightmare. Carmen says that after Lindsay came back to the Comox Valley and moved out of a family home, they started to drift apart. We sort of drifted apart because she started hanging out with some that they were not <laughs> people that I liked. Right. From yeah. school or older? No, they wouldn't have been from school. They would have been older. And I don't know how she met them, but it must have been after she came back. Like maybe through the foster home. I'm not sure. But she did start to change, you know, after a while. The last time I saw her was not long before she disappeared. It was a summertime. She came over and we were looking at my yearbook. And... Yeah, that's when she was telling me about the guy. The last time Judy spoke with Lindsay was on the Friday before the BC Day long weekend when Lindsay phoned from the foster home. Judy told Lindsay she loved her and that she missed her. Lindsay sounded fine, but even though it had only been a few days, she was already unhappy in the foster home. 
I knew that she was on a farm and I thought, oh, she's going to love that. It's going to be good for her and whatever. But she was not happy. And I thought, good. Never occurred to me when I knew that she was out there that, oh my God, now she's in worse danger because she's going to hitchhike. I have some great news for Vancouver listeners. Those of you who live in the Lower Mainland and love jewellery and design will be excited to know that Erin Haken has opened a studio in Vancouver. Erin brings her degree in art history and studies in jewellery making together with her love of antique styling to create really unique handcrafted pieces. Go to erinhaken.com, that's E-R-I-N-H-A-K-I-N.com and receive 15% off your order when you use the code COLDCASE. On the day Lindsay disappeared, she argued with a foster mother who had told her to take a shower and she stormed out of the house wearing jeans, a khaki silk tank top, a blue and pink checkered shirt and white runners. The Nichols had gone away for the long weekend, taking Kim and a friend out on the boat. When they arrived back, Judy phoned the foster home and was shocked to learn that Lindsay had not been seen since the previous day, and nobody had reported her missing. Judy phoned the police. We had gone away for the weekend, and when we came back, I phoned, and the foster mother told me that she hadn't been home the night before, and I went, did you phone the police? No. When you heard the next day that Lindsay hadn't come home, what was your reaction? Did you think she'd run away? I think all of us thought that she'd run away again, yeah. You know, it was Comox days in the long weekend in August, and so there's lots of kids out partying at the lake, and we figured maybe she was out at a party overnight. Or I went out and looked at her thing, and that's when I started to get really scared. She had a teddy bear, and she took it with her the first time, and it was still there. And I know she didn't have hardly any money, didn't have really a coat. She was wearing shorts, didn't take a bag or anything. Because Lindsay had run away three months before and had threatened to do so again, police were convinced that she'd headed back to Delta and treated her as a runaway. She was treated as a runaway because she had run away before. And so the case was not taken seriously. So there was almost nothing done initially. There was no neighborhood checks, nothing. I can't remember how many weeks later I phoned missing children and they asked me for all this information. So I went to the office and got the file. I filled in all the information, but there was almost nothing in the file. They did almost nothing. It's a completely different world. There was no social media. Didn't really have cell phones. Like literally was walking around the town with color posters that I had designed and written and got printed with a roll of scotch tape. And then missing children stepped in and they papered the whole province with posters. As well as putting up missing persons posters with Lindsay's face, the Missing Children Society sent out their own investigator, a retired RCMP officer named Fred Maley. And that's when the investigation really started. Fred interviewed all of Lindsay's friends. Judy did all the media interviews that she could. I asked Martin Nichols why he didn't speak out publicly or use the influence he must have had as an RCMP officer in the same detachment that should have been investigating his daughter's disappearance. He told me that at the time he believed he would be putting a fellow investigator 
in a difficult position if he asked for information. As a parent and an RCMP officer, I mean, what was available to you to, to help her or stop her? Nothing. Nothing? Nothing. The RCMP was terrible. They didn't have a process to deal with uh, situations like that that I'm aware of. I don't think the uh, criminal law was helpful at that time. My interaction with uh, investigators from Surrey Detachment was, hey, we can't do anything. And that was pretty typical back then. I had lots of problems when I got to Comox, both before and after Lindsay disappeared, that I had to talk to the police. And most of the time, the attitude I got was from the uniform detachment guys was, hey, I'm really busy. I got a million things to do. I'm really busy. I'm really busy. That just hmm. seemed to be their uh, their fallback line for anything that required attention. I didn't get any support from any of the senior staff when all this was going on. Nobody said you need help, or don't. Nobody checked to see if the investigation was going well. Nothing. Why didn't you push it? That's a good question. I guess that's just my own professional standards. I think I would be putting an investigator in an uncomfortable position if I demanded information on an investigation. Okay. It's both professional conduct. It would be, in my view, inappropriate behavior to do that. Do you have new regrets now? Would you have done anything differently? I don't know. I don't think it would have made any difference. I think I, now that I'm a experienced senior investigator, I would have ground all over them for doing such a shitty initial investigation and not responding right from early on. And then when she actually did go missing, just doing a really, what I believe to be a bad investigation. Somebody made a note in their notebook and wrote, concluded here, probable runaway on a report. That'd be my guess. And she'd run away before, so that was an easy conclusion, I gather. Yeah. Looking back now, what do you think happened to Lindsay? I can only speculate that she was kidnapped and murdered and her body hidden. That's all I got. What would you advise someone in your position with an underage girl that went missing? What would you advise them to do? Well, it's like a lot of things. I think you have to advocate for yourself. If you leave it too long, the bright, shiny ball that the police found on day one often gets left in the desk drawer by day five. you got to keep after them. Judy and Martin separated less than three months after their daughter went missing. Both Judy and Martin were given polygraph lie detector tests. While Martin made a decision not to talk to the media, believing it wouldn't help to find his daughter, Judy disagreed. She knows that coverage in the media could result in a tip that might lead to a key piece of information that solves the mystery behind her daughter's disappearance. RCMP Corporal Jason Jenkins worked on Lindsay's file for nearly seven years. It's clear that he cares deeply about the case, has a bond with the family, and wants to see the mystery solved. At the end of the day, I mean, the biggest thing for us is we just want to find Lindsay. We'd like to bring her home to her mom. 
and hopefully she can help us provide some answers as to what happened. That's only going to happen with assistance from the public. I've got to imagine that stranger abduction is pretty unusual. Extremely. I've been a police officer for 21 years right now. I can't think of one that I've been involved with or investigated, aside from potentially this one. We don't know. We also have to understand that this is still a possibility in Lindsay's case. I mean, don't get me wrong. Is it a likely end? No. But is it possible? Absolutely. We have we've never found any remains. You know, I mean, one of the better tips that we have is that someone saw someone they believe might have been her getting into a truck, but that was months after the fact that someone's reporting uh, okay. that. So as much as it sounds like a very reasonable tip, there's only so much weight that you can really apply to that. She had a history of running away previously. Mm-hmm. She was at odds with her family, and you know, and she was living in foster care because of some of that uh, mm-hmm. those troubles. And I say I'm not a believer that that's likely what's happened, but is it still in the realm of possibility? Absolutely, it is. Public awareness is probably the most important thing we can do, especially in the Comox Valley, right? I mean, this is where she's gone missing, and this is still an active, open investigation that is assigned to a police officer. And if someone has information that they feel is worth us knowing, that we will happily take that information. Over the last three decades, police have received more than 400 tips, administered 15 polygraph examinations, and interviewed over 100 people. In 2000, the RCMP had a suspect in their sights and launched an undercover investigation. Over the years, there have been three excavations and on one occasion dogs were brought in to search for Lindsay's remains, all in Royston, near the foster home where Lindsay was staying when she disappeared. The most recent search was in 2016. RCMP officer Jason Jenkins says the foster parents are not suspects in Lindsay's disappearance. If you're enjoying Cold Case Canada, why not buy Eve a coffee? Go to evelazarus.com. Lindsay's file is categorised as missing, foul play suspected. Judy now believes that her daughter is dead, that she was likely abducted and killed. Lindsay would have contacted the family if she was able, says Judy. One thing that haunts her is that if Lindsay was murdered, she was quite possibly the victim of a serial killer. As a long-time volunteer with the Missing Children's Society of Canada, Judy has been relentless in getting attention, not only for Lindsay's case, but for missing children everywhere. In 2018, the 25th anniversary of Lindsay's disappearance, Judy put up two sets of three billboards asking for information about Lindsay outside Courtney, BC, one on the Old Island Highway in Royston, near where Lindsay was last seen, and the other on a busy stretch of road between Comox and Courtney. Judy says that she was inspired by the 2017 movie Three Billboards Outside Ebbing, Missouri, in which a mother, played by Frances McDormand, takes on the local police force out of frustration with their lack of progress in the investigation into the rape and murder of her daughter. The movie was based on the real-life murder of Kathy Page, a Texas mother of two, in 1991. Page's husband, Steve, was a prime suspect. The Fultons, Page's parents, brought a civil case against Steve, which found him responsible and awarded the family $200,000. However, Steve Page was never charged, and the Fultons were furious. 
they used some of the money from the settlement to rent billboards in Vidor, Texas, plastering them with messages and pictures of Kathy and Steve Page. One read, Steve Page brutally murdered his wife in 1991. Vidor, the police department doesn't want to solve this case. I believe they took a bribe. The Attorney General should investigate. James Fulton, her father. Getting the billboards up proved to be a logistical nightmare for Judy and Kim. They needed permission and the billboards had to conform to a certain size. With the help of friends and Judy's husband, Lyndon, they constructed six billboards, making the frames out of borrowed political campaign signs. They were designed by Judy's niece, Jennifer, a graphic artist. Judy had them printed in Vancouver and shipped over to the Comox Valley. In the movie, the mother blames the police, but in Judy's case, the RCMP were very supportive. It was a very positive thing. Judy came to me and said, what do you think? And I said, you know, like, I don't need to go to any kind of bureaucracy and, and whatnot. Like, that's thinking outside the box, and I really like it. Like, let's, let's follow up with this. Let's make a deal with this. We actually had a small media scrum at the uh, detachment, and I was out there with them hammering nails and helping with the cleanup after so many weeks. It's like, it was a very positive thing for the family, but it's something that... You know, it was based on a, an issue of trust that we had developed between ourselves, right? We knew that this wasn't going to be her stabbing us in the back, and she knew that it wasn't going to be us, uh, you know, leaving her out to do this on her own. But she took the ball and ran with it, and, but it was very positive and definitely generated a lot of media attention and then significant tips after that. Amanda Pick, Chief Executive Officer at the Missing Children Society of Canada, says a Calgary-based organisation gets over 800 calls for assistance in any given year. We have had an active support role with Judy's family and in partnership with police since the since when within that first week and it hasn't stopped till today. So we've done searches, we've done awareness campaigns, our team did interviews, we've done ground searches, we've been involved and participated with Judy in press conferences, we've done lobbying support with Judy, the list goes on and on. It is a disappearance, and that's how we classify is Lindsay's a disappearance, because there there still remains many unanswered questions Mm -hmm. around how Lindsay disappeared. And so we have a lot of evidence and interviews and or people sharing about the circumstances of when and how Lindsay disappeared. But up until this moment, there's still not the information that confirms that, that Lindsay was abducted. Mm-hmm. So for us, that's when you start talking about stranger abduction, there is evidence that says that that child was abducted and there will be fighting. That information has never been shared on Lindsay's case, so it's a disappearance. Pick says Missing Children works closely with the National Centre for Missing Persons and Unidentified Remains. While finding a body or remains is an outcome that nobody wants, identifying missing people is a way to give families some form of closure. Judy spent nearly 20 years fighting for the right to have her daughter's DNA and the DNA of other missing people included in Nempa's data bank, so that if Lindsay's remains were found anywhere in North America, she would know. Judy's efforts paid off in 2018 with the creation of Lindsay's Law and fittingly 
Lindsay was the first missing person to be included when her DNA was submitted to the data bank, says Amanda Pick. It's incredible. It is extraordinary what Judy has done. She is the humblest person I have met. To know that every single day she lives with not having Lindsay with her and to see what she has brought about for the rest of the country through that pain, and is, it's unreal. It is unreal. I asked Judy how important it is to keep Lindsay's name alive in the media and in people's minds. And how important is that for you to keep attention and keep a name alive? Yeah, it's very important. I mean, I feel like somebody's got to know something. Is it better to keep hope alive or to find her remains and get some closure? No, it's better to find her remains. I want to know what happened to her. If she's out there somewhere, I want to bring her home. Thank you so much for listening. This story is based on my book, Cold Case BC, the stories behind the province's most intriguing murder and missing person cases. I want to thank Judy Peterson, Martin and Kim Nichols for trusting me to tell the story of their daughter and sister. Hopefully, one day in the not-too-distant future, they'll find out what happened to Lindsay and at least get some form of closure. If you can help with any information relating to Lindsay Nichols' disappearance, please contact the Comox RCMP 250 338 1321 or if you'd rather stay anonymous, call Crime Stoppers 1-800-222-8477 or you can go to the website solvecrime.ca. If you'd like more information on this or other cases, please go to my website evelazarus.com or join us on the Facebook group page Cold Case Canada. I'm Eve Lazarus and I'm a reporter and an author based in Vancouver, British Columbia. I host and produce Blood, Sweat and Fear, the story of Inspector Vance. Vance wasn't a police officer, as his title suggests. He was the first forensic scientist to work for a police department in Canada and certainly the first to carry a badge and a gun. Vance was so good that he was known as the Sherlock Holmes of Canada And his forensic skills were so advanced that in 1934, there were seven attempts on his life by criminals afraid to go up against him in court. Each episode follows a different major crime that Vance helped to solve. You can find Blood, Sweat and Fear on Apple, Podbean or your favourite podcatcher. 